Ohio has lost 575,000 jobs since the start of the decade. How do we get them back? That's coming up next. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Daryl Rowland, Public Affairs Editor for the Columbus Dispatch. Julie Carr-Smythe, Statehouse Correspondent for the Associated Press. Terry Casey, Republican Strategist. And Sam Gresham of Common Cause Ohio. Welcome to this Columbus on the Record special. We'll take a break from the weekly grind to look at our future, our economic future. Since the start of the new century, Ohio has lost more than a half million jobs. Whether you blame it on government policies, Wall Street, or the worldwide recession, that's the reality. So how do we get them back? Julie Carsmythe, many of these jobs were decent paying manufacturing jobs and may have really taken a hit. Is there any chance of them coming back? Well, I mean, I think in addition to the economic factors, we have the the technological factors that are, are causing us to lose these jobs. The uh, automation that's completely reduced the need for some really tough physical labor. So it's not all a bad thing. But I do think that uh, it's so unlikely that any of that is going to come back because there aren't monetary efficiencies in it. So what is to, what is most to blame? Is it shipping jobs overseas? Is it the technological advance, robotics? I think it's, it's, it's the factor of knowledge, the progression. As we, in technology, grow, um, semi-skilled and no-skilled jobs are, are eliminated. Um, but I think there's some underpinnings about the economic situation that we have to look Our two greatest co competitors are what is called centralized capitalism, and that means the government makes policy decisions. When we talk about manufacturing, we're going to have to raise the question, how do we approach that since they have a centralized system of doing that? The second point I want to raise about that is semi-skilled, unskilled, uneducated people, which constitutes about 30% of our population. If we don't have that type of work available, what happens to the social political system that we have that's called capitalism? So there are good things that go along with it, but there are some bad things, too, that we have to deal with. And Julie touched on one of the things. Part of it, from a safety standpoint, it is good that we've gotten smarter in how to manufacture. Actually, today in Ohio, we're manufacturing as much in the metals and those other areas as we did a decade ago because they've learned how to be smarter. And one of the reasons why we've got to be smarter Many of us might remember from a few years back, the earth is flat. I mean, the growth in China and Japan. If we're going to be competitive in the United States and in the world, we've got to be smarter in terms of how we produce things. And also things have changed because today, Honda is Ohio's biggest auto manufacturer, not GM or Ford or Chrysler. So things can change. And if you have the vision, as Jim Rhodes did, to recruit a Honda from Japan here, you can produce jobs. If you just sit here waiting for them to call, uh, you're going to have a trouble. But Toyota just recently announced that they are going to open. They're going to. They delayed it at first. Their plant in Mississippi, I believe. So they're moving. The, the Ohio's not even getting the foreign auto manufacturers to set up shop here right now. We lost Honda to Indiana. Daryl, I mean, it's still tough. It's tough out there. Well, right. I, I mean, there's not a person watching this show. Uh, that thinks these ma all these manufacturing jobs are going to come back. Too often we have the tendency to slide that pendulum all the way the other way and think, well, manufacturing has, has nothing in Ohio's future, and that's, that's equally absurd. Sure. Uh, but we have to be smarter about it. Uh, what does Ohio have to offer that other states don't? Because it's an 
it's incredibly competitive, especially in a down economy. Um, you know, we don't have climate, we don't have oceans, we don't have mountains, so if that's a factor, we don't have that. So you control the controllables, as one of my good friends likes to say. Mm -hmm. But Ohio's still got a very good location, a central location, but yeah. we're competing with states that, like in Minnesota, has got a much worse climate and location, but it's their workforce training, their work ethic in Minnesota is a lot better than it is in some parts of Ohio. I'll, I'll go back to this, though. We, we need manufacturing. It's a security issue. If we're not able to produce certain types of materials, it's a security issue. So I don't think we can depart wholeheartedly for some of the traditional manufacturing we used to have. We need to have it. Now, how we, how we maintain it, how we grow it, I think that's different. I think we need a manufacturing or industrial policy that's based on a regional uh, composition where you have regions of the country. And I think eventually the government's going to have to get in the business of creating incentive, um, do the research, and drive this, this development. I'll go back. If we don't have that employment, where's the middle class in our country? Where's the working middle class if we don't have that type of employment? And that's where the worker issues get involved, where you're saying, you know, are we going to have uh, good wages? As Sam suggests, we want to have these jobs if we're going to keep them, be living wage jobs. You know, the competition, the global factor that Terry brings up, you know, are we going to forsake certain environmental uh, regulations that we have or you know in order to make this happen and so that's that's that balancing act of the policy. What about tariffs and trade policies? I mean there's still some complaints that China still has an advantage and we're not tough enough with China and other nations um, but on the other hand we export Ohio exports a lot of money the United States exports a lot of business to those countries so you have to balance protecting jobs here but also not hurting the jobs we gain from Trade policies well, with Ohio nations. does have a lot of excess exporting items, uh, so we can succeed. I mean, I think the good thing, and you've got to give Bill Clinton credit in the 1990s, uh, John Kasich happened to vote for NAFTA, uh, but you know, the trade, right we can succeed. Did. Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, we can succeed in a world economy, and you know, Ohio fortunately has had a history of innovation whether it's Edison or the Wright Brothers, you look mm -hmm. at a company down in Cincinnati called Procter & Gamble, which is really even more of a world power since they bought out Gillette. So we've got some Ohio companies, and like the Limited here in central Ohio has been a tremendously successful world player in terms of how jobs are generated in Ohio by things manufactured in Asia and mm -hmm. sold around the United States and around the world. I, I'm not sure that you may or may not be right, but I'm not sure people in Ohio are buying that because I think we've we've seen that the trade agreements, uh, you know, NAFTA, CAFTA, what have you, most favored nation, being u been used successfully as a whipping boy on the campaign trail. I think we saw Sherrod Brown use it successfully in 06. Um, again, maybe scapegoating it when we're down, so it may be right, may be wrong. Um, so I'm not sure if you took a poll of Ohioans that trade agreements would be all that popular. I think it depends on who you talk to. A lot of people in the farm community get it very much because if we didn't have the exports of farm products from Ohio and the United States, there'd be a lot less jobs. So, I mean, it depends on the community, but I think more and more people are smarter about these things. And part of the problem with China, it isn't so much trade policies, it's currency policies, which really yeah. gets complicated. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I think, that, I think there's, there's a sense of the loss of certain types of jobs. 
you know, you don't have to have a college degree. And with 60 hours a month, I mean, 60 hours a week, you can do $100,000. I think the sense of that type of job being lost in our economy and that type of family not having the type of security that they can see out over the window in the future. And I really think that's a problem um, from the standpoint of where our, where our country is going. Well, sure. And, you, I mean, go, go up to Honda and look at the line there or, or even any of the American manufacturers. Uh, these guys are not necessarily there putting the, the panels on or anything. They're running computers yeah, right. and things of that nature. So even those traditional blue-collar jobs, um, you need some training and some education. Yeah. And Sam touched on education. I mean, one of the failures, some of our school systems are smart, but some of them have avoided anything to do with technology, <coughs> but that's part of the future. Even in a machine shop in Ohio, uh, the old die cutters of the past are pretty much gone. If you're going to work in a machine shop, you've got to program a computer and a very expensive piece of equipment to make it work and make it productive. Let's get to the green collar jobs. We hear it all of the time. Ohio could be the Silicon Valley of the green economy, but North Carolina wants to be the Silicon Valley of the green economy. Michigan, even Silicon Valley wants to be the Silicon Valley of the green economy. <laughs> Ohio has some things going for it. Good manufacturing history. Toledo is a leader in making solar panels. Darrell Rowland, the dispatch did a, steri- a series this spring looking at this right. green economy, the promise of these jobs. Is it going to be the cure that everyone hopes it's going to be? Well, we called that series uh, Green Dreams. My colleagues Joe Howell and Dan Garino uh, did that. And that's sort of a double meaning, on, uh, very intentionally so, on the series name. It's a dream in that this may become a reality someday. This may be our only way out. Um, or is it more ephemeral? Is it just a dream that goes up in a puff of smoke when you wake up to a, a sad reality? Uh, first of all, I, I, no one, again, thinks that you're going to trade, certainly not on a one-for-one basis, an old economy job for a new green economy job, and certainly not at the same pay scale. But what is exciting about Ohio, we have a, a very good trained workforce, a lot of, uh, a lot of skilled laborers. Um, gotta, can you put cars together one day using those computers or whatever and work on solar panels or, or wind uh, rotors the next day? I don't know. There's, and there's a lot of cool innovation going on in Ohio's think tanks and universities. Uh, making algae into fuel and cool stuff down around Ohio U and Toledo and Dayton and, of course, with Mattel and right here in Columbus. One of the toughest things, I think, regarding this transition is the the policy that comes in between. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen that, for example, with our the the thresholds we tried to set on the use of alternative energy, which Mm -hmm. is really the basis for the demand that's going to drive this economy. 25% of our energy Mm -hmm. from alternative sources by 2025. Right, right, Mm -hmm. right. which sounds great, but then when you start to say that also includes um, new coal, and that includes nuclear, and then you get into, you know, some of the groups that are trying to support the wind uh, biofuels, that whole sector, are saying, well, that's going to, those guys already have such a leg up that this is this economy will never develop. So I think that, that the trick is, and we've seen it in other areas as well, where you're trying to build an, uh, a policy that's going to encourage both at the same time, not completely put the coal mines in Ohio out of business, mm-hmm. and yet also encourage this. And I'm, I'm glad that Daryl mentioned the word dream, because part of it, it all sounds nice, but a lot of it is fantasy land because the dispatch series didn't touch much 
on the economics. And example, I mean, wind technology is nice. This is a picture I took in Denmark in 2008 in the harbor in Copenhagen. I mean, it's done a lot of places in the world, the wind technology. The only problem with this technology in parts of Ohio to actually use it and to create arbitrary 25% requirements is in Ohio, particularly in the winter, at night, solar panels don't work very well when you want to keep your home warm and the lights on and the TV on, and the same thing with the wind. Wind dramatically goes down in the evening compared to the daytime. So there's a lot of fantasy being sold. But that's current technology. I mean, you got to look 10, they're talking 2025, might solar panels be advanced, the technology would to make the cost, I mean, one of the biggest problems with solar and wind is the electric companies are required to have a certain base load regardless whether the wind's blowing or the sun's shining. And if you've got to build a dual system of coal plants and nuclear to provide the electric during the winter nights, suddenly the consumer is going to have to pay two to three times as much per kilowatt hour. But I, th I think that's the way of the future. And I want to really respond to your question. I don't think it's going to be as pure green as people say it is. I think it's going to be a hodgepodge and a combination. I think my concern is, does the free market system accommodate itself very easily to this approach? And that's what I'm concerned about. If you, if you look at how our, our economies have been allowed to be demand, supply, demand, supply, can it really function the same way in a green economy? Um, and well, we, we saw it during when gas was 4.50 a gallon. All of a sudden, taking the bus was kind of cool. Right. Or there was riding your bike, or, riding your bike right. or carpooling, or that's when you know the streetcar and light rail got a little bit more perhaps favorable. But when gas goes back down to two fifty a gallon, all goes away. Buses. But the, but the reality is, most consumers, <coughs> even though there was a slight bump up in code of bus usage, it wasn't anything significant. It was like seventeen or percent, twenty percent, I think, during the height anyway. Well, yeah, but if you take the subsidy out of gas that the government creates for it, gas when gas gets to six to eight bucks a gallon, the world all of a sudden changes on how people. And sometimes, uh, as hard as it may be, I think five, six, seven bucks may be reasonable in order for some of these other things for to happen. But when government imposes those higher prices through higher taxes, like the cap and trade bill, it's now before but they're Congress. They're artificially subsidizing it now, Terry. It's the marketplace. People like lower prices. There aren't many consumers out there saying to the grocery store, your prices are too low. But we don't pay the true price no, but cost, yeah. cost of gas. No, we don't. Well, There's also a lot of taxes in the, on the, on the Well, and it's, it's similar to what we've seen, say, with organic food. You know, you're going to pay more for organics, and some people are willing to do that. Some people can sign up with AP, AEP and pay more, actually, for their electric bill yeah. if they want to support green mm -hmm. alternatives. So, you know, we're seeing this whole manufacturing question clash or, or mesh with, with an environmental message that is sort of coming up, I think, in the next generation. Let's get to our next topic. Ohioans do more than make things. They grow things. They move things. They can build things. They can manage money and provide all kinds of services. If manufacturing's best days are behind us, what industries are poised for growth? Sam, where are these middle-class jobs going to be that you talk about? Is Where would you guess if you were to give some advice these days? I'm going to go out on a limb and say some things that we've never thought of. I think the traditional things that we're thinking about, solar panel, air, and all those things, will not be the things that we will be talking about. I mean, who talked about a cell phone the way we have a cell phone today? Who talked about an iPad the way we have an iPad today? 
It's going to be something different, but I think the backbone of that is three things. There's a collision of culture, there's a collision of politics, and then there's a collision of our free market system. All of those things are colliding all in one place. Now, how they play themselves out, and what, what I'm worried about is the losers. Who becomes the losers? Now, the technology in itself will eliminate jobs. It, it, and, but it's going to create some jobs on the other side. But uh, as Terry talked about, it requires more education, more skill. And if we don't have those people to do that, how far can we take this technology? And to pick up on Sam's point on the cell phones and the iPads and that kind of thing, it wasn't government dreaming up, we're going to do this. It was the free market system. And if you really want to create jobs in innovation, having government bureaucrats try and figure it out, it's never going to get done. Uh, we need to turn loose more of the creativity uh, in the private sector, and if you get government over-regulating and trying to control things, it's going to make it worse. Doesn't government incentivize all kinds of yeah. business, though? I mean, with tax incentives and, and subsidies and grants and, and R&D? They, they do some of it, but if you look at, and I'm a Mac user, uh, you know, part of their innovation wasn't because the government called up the chairman and say, why don't you design your products better and cooler and we'll give you a subsidy. It's basically he's a smart business person that looks at what a consumer's like and what a consumer's want. Government is awfully slow. I was on the library board a few years back and our director was on a uh, development thing for technology in central Ohio. His problem was that Ohio State couldn't turn around and produce the graduates we need because universities like government are very slow in responding to the marketplace. It's true and I think with energy that the trick is also that it's a utility and you know people have to yeah. have it and you can't play around. Mm -hmm. But what about the you know they bend over backwards, though, government, to offer tax incentives and tax abatements to these to companies. To create direction. And then the companies gladly take them. If governments but should the, just stay out, should the they biggest, stay out of that stuff, too? But the biggest local tax break given was to NetJets because they thought, we're going to ride the future of private jets for rich people that uh, use so much more energy in the environment, and NetJets has dramatically underperformed what they promised in the jobs they would produce. But so Terry, your, your statement is partially correct. NASA has produced a lot of products that turn out to be commercial products. I don't know if the ATM or the Polaroid camera or the copier were just total free market things. They were all done at Battelle, but there was some government involvement in creating the incentives to do those things. But most of it was the private sector and turning people loose. If the government bureaucrats had to tell Henry Ford what to do or not do with auto production, we'd still probably be back well, we in the horse and buggy. Standards. We're telling them what to do. Well, but we might ruin the industry and drive <laughs> the jobs overseas. But you have all sorts of national health and science grants, and uh, right. there's so much money. And if you, especially if you count cooperative arrangements with public universities, there's all sorts of public-private partnerships going on. So, I'm not, you know, I'm not bashing your private sector only, but uh, I think there's a little need for a little larger perspective. But, but I think here. you got to turn the private sector loose and the creativity because if everything's got to be you run through a government the bureaucrat. Inter, uh, industry in South, uh, South you of mean how the government uh, looked uh, the other way? I don't think asleep. the government did that, Terry. I think they had all those yeah, safety rules themselves. The government was supposed to turn them loose. <laughs> Isn't that what you just said? Isn't that, there's an argument I just, I read that regulation actually helps business because it, 
It creates the rules, the stable system that everyone has to play by, so you don't have a system like the energy, what the energy sector has seen when the, it led to the BP, perhaps led to the BP oil spill. Well, you, you need a balance, but I remember in the mid-90s when the Internet was in its infancy, nobody had any Al Gore idea. Al credit for that? Uh, no, that was way before Al Gore. <laughs> well, let's look to the consumers. You know, government, we look at the globalization's effect, that's lower prices. A, a computer that once cost $3,000 now costs just a few hundred dollars. HD TVs are affordable now to most people. Food remains fairly inexpensive, relatively speaking, and if we were to impose tariffs or improve our education system, it would cost us, both in consumer prices and in tax rates. And our 401ks might suffer just a little bit if those corporate profits shrink. Julie, are consumers ready to pay? We've all talked about are they willing to pay the price to help the local economy? I don't think they are at all. I mean, we've seen the the explosion of Walmart as the the largest employer in the state, nation, and world in the same time period we're talking about, we're sitting here talking about. People want low prices. Americans especially, I think, more so than other countries, look upon low prices and variety as part of being an American, part of what it, this free market idea we're talking about. Other countries, um, you know, maybe they have two models of something and, and you go in and you get to pick one or the other. And so the choice and the price is sometimes driving people right now, I would argue, to even consume against their better interests. Mm -hmm. Yeah, borrow yeah. too much on credit cards, right, home right, equity right. loans, all the stuff that got us into trouble the past five and years. Julie mentioned the example of organic food. If you go into a Kroger, you'll see there's a certain offering at maybe double the price for organic eggs, whatever that exactly means. But if people got a choice between a dozen eggs at $2.29 versus a dozen eggs at $1.10, we know which one sells a lot more because consumers are very smart uh, in terms of the value, they and their loyalty today is not quite the way it once was. So they're no, but, agile and they're quick. But Walmart is selling organic stuff now. But they don't sell as much as they do. Well, but the, they weren't selling any before. Yeah. So, yeah. so you're, it's, I mean, it's kind of a false dichotomy here that they're not selling more. They are selling. They're selling more than they were before, so maybe there is hope. Though there's a certain percentage of consumers who will pay more and can afford to pay more. They see a value in that, that it exceeds the added price. Yeah, but for the vast majority, they're still counting every penny yep. and clipping coupons and watching how they spend their money. We talked about education. I mean, that's going to I mean, there's debates on whether educators spend money wisely or as efficiently as they could. But if you want a higher level of workforce, more skilled, educated workforce, that's going to take some money, public money, into well, higher education and secondary and education. I, and, I don't, and I don't think we're making that investment. I don't see us understanding that we need that. We're still trying to do that on the cheap and expect to get the results. What is insanity? Doing the same thing and expect a different result? Let, let, uh, let, let me play devil's advocate here. If you look at the facts of the Columbus Public Schools, they spend $14,000 per pupil per year and you look at an average classroom of 20 or 23 kids, they've got the money, it's how the money's being spent. And I would argue education is still awfully 400-year-old technology of the teacher's mouth to the student's ear, and a lot of the people in the teaching community are innovative and hardworking and caring, but an awful lot of them just want to put their time in and cash out in retirement in a few years. Well, I, I would beg to differ with you. I would think that we, there would be people 
who are, are concerned. Some, there some. Are, and you do see, if you look at the Columbus Public Schools, there's a lot of innovations at the type of schools they have and the things that they're doing. Now, the problem that they have is they have very difficult students. So that $14,000 goes into a student who's four rungs behind. Now, I wish I could find a way to get that student five rungs ahead so it wouldn't cost us so well, much. Do politicians have the, I mean, the courage to say, we need to wean ourselves away from coal towards nuclear, if that's a more efficient uh, way to, to generate well, the power? The environmentalists hate well, uh, nuclear, and they hate coal. I mean, most of them. Nuke is, a, is an example. Days. Something else that's not reliant. On I would coal. say politicians in Ohio don't. Yeah, no, they don't. No, and no. you know, for even with um, you know uh, controversies over coal mine disasters and everything else, it's a very difficult argument to make with the public because the cheap coal is how we get our cheap energy, which runs the whole country. And look at look at the Gulf of Mexico, where the fishermen. Mm -hmm. whose livelihoods are being ruined by some of them yeah. by the oil spill say no we love oil because a lot of our customers are were employed by the oil that's really the dichotomy of yeah. the social political and economic system yeah. Yeah. but if you look at coal you'll see along 315 mm -hmm. the railroad that runs up there have tons of coal going up there in railroad cars going to Toledo to be shipped overseas to be used in other countries there's your trains Terry we got to get to our <laughs> off the record comments our parting shots Sam Gresham you're up for us uh, LeBron will stay in Cleveland. Will that, will that help Cleveland's economy? <laughs> uh, yes, it'll stabilize it. Plus the income taxes that LeBron <laughs> generates. He'll choose Ohio. Terry? Uh, I think, uh, sadly, Ohio still lacks a lot of vision, and I'll use an example. The University of Toledo, many years back, developed the light emitting uh, the little diodes, that technology, had the patents, but didn't do anything with it. Somebody else bought them up and the technology went elsewhere. Ohio needs more vision. They need to get into the 21st century and realize the competition from China and India. Or steal other people's stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Julie? I think a, uh, a biofuels, liquid, coal liquid plant mm -hmm. out on the Ohio River is, is probably never gonna be in our future. Mm -hmm. Sad as it may be. And Daryl, um, mine's related to election year. You're going to hear you're hearing a lot of promises about from candidates for governor, candidates for the U.S. Senate about turning things around. Um, I think, sadly enough, we'll be sitting here a year from now, and Ohio's still going to be uh, in the dumper on a lot of areas, Politics. regardless of who wins. Politics only can go so far. That is Columbus on the record for this week. We urge you to continue the conversation at our website. What are your thoughts on the future of Ohio's economy? Take part in the discussion on our Facebook page. You can find a link to it at our website, wosu.org slash C-O-T-R. For our crew here at WOSU at COSI and for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week.